0: Welcome back. Um, reminder, if you haven't done so, to turn off your cell phones. OK, we're ready. Um, welcome back to the second panel. And the uh, Cato Institute's uh, morning of um, considering the, uh, month, the month after, well, or two days after the inauguration, the couple of months after election, what happened, what should happen, after Citizens United. Uh, I'll be moderating the second panel uh, to, remind, to, to remind some of you or tell those of you who are not here at the very opening. My name is Michael Malbin. Uh, as John said, I'm the co-founder and the executive director of the Campaign Finance Institute, which is a nonpartisan research institute in Washington, DC. I am also a professor of political science at the State University of New York at Albany and have been studying this stuff for longer than I can remember. <laughs> um, these, we have three speakers this morning uh, in, on this panel. First will be Lawrence Vlasic, who's the Roy Furman Professor of Law and Leadership at Harvard Law School. Uh, he's also the director of the Safra Center for Ethics at Harvard and founder of Root Strikers, which is a network of activists uh, leading the fight against government corruption, he's authored numerous books, including *Republic Lost: How Money Corrupts Our Congress and a Plan to Stop It*. He's also written about uh, uh, about cyberspace, free culture, remix. Um, and for those of you who haven't read it, uh, *Republic Lost* uh, is a great read. Uh, you'll some of you will agree, some will disagree. Uh, it it is a, a Good read, whichever way you come down. John Samples will go. I'm sorry, uh, Don McGahn will go after um, Larry. Uh, he's the currently the vice chairman of the Federal Election Commission, which is the six member independent regulatory agency charged with administering and enforcing campaign finance laws, uh, and uh, um, as uh, those of you who are here in the first panel will know, it uh, is occasionally a subject of a very interested and significant conversation uh, in this subject area. He was nominated by President Bush, received the unanimous consent of the Senate in 2008, and in the past has been um, uh, chair of the commission. Uh, he previously, before that, was in private practice, and before that, uh, held positions on the Hill. John Samples um, directs the Center for Representative Government at the Cato Institute. His book, The Struggle to Limit Government, A Modern Political History, came out in 2009. Before that, his book, The Fallacy of Campaign Finance Reform, was published by University of Chicago Press in 2006, also a good read. So if you read the two good books written by people on this panel, you will get very different points of view but two good reads. Um, He also co-directed the uh, Brookings-Cato project on political competition. On this panel, uh, um, Professor Lessig will speak first, followed by Don Nagan, and then followed by John Samples.
1: Thank you, Michael. And very happy to be here at Cato. Um, But I want to begin by setting up uh, a description of the problem. And I want to react a little bit to the characterization of that problem from this morning. Um, There's a fantastic report that was literally published just last week by Demos and PERG that tries to put the recent election in some context. And so this morning, you heard the claim that effectively, Citizens United and the subsequent decisions w- represented no change. Well, here is the outside spending before Citizens United. Here's the outside spending after Citizens United. That's a distinction, a difference that I think even a statistician could notice. There's um, <laughs> also the claim that there was not much secret money. Um, here's Demos and Perg's estimate of the amount of money where we have no way to identify who the donor was. There's also a suggestion that somehow the existing system is good for the challengers, not so good for the incumbents. But in fact, the reelection rates. Um, have only been going up in the Senate, stayed the same in the House. And if you look at the funding differences in the House of incumbents versus challengers, House incumbents raised 5.4 times the amount of money as challengers, and Senate incumbents raised 4.2 times the amount of challengers. Now, that's my disagreement with the suggestion of this morning, but here's my agreement. I actually do not think Indeed, I think we are obsessing too much on this decision by the Supreme Court. I do not think Citizens United is the problem. But to understand the problem, I need to tell you a little story. And I'm told all stories begin something like this. So here it goes. (laughs) Once upon a time, there was a place called Lesterland. Michael didn't tell you this because it's a secret, so please don't repeat it, but my first name is actually Lester, so I'm allowed to make fun of Lester, so here I am going to make fun of Lester's. Lesterland. Lesterland looks a lot like the United States, has about 300 million people. Of the 300 million people, uh, 144,000 of them are named Lester, which means about .05% of Lesterland is named Lester. Now, Leicester's in Leicesterland have a very important power. There are two elections every election cycle in Leicesterland. There's a general election, and there's a Leicester election. In the Leicester election, only the Leicesters get to vote, but in the general election, all citizens, if you're over 18, and some states, if you have an ID, get to vote. But here's the trick. In order to run in the general election, you must do extremely well in the Leicester election. You don't necessarily have to win, but you must do extremely well. Now, what can we say about this picture of democracy in Leicesterland? Well, we can say, number one, agreeing with the Supreme Court and Citizens United, the people in Leicesterland have the ultimate influence over elected officials, because after all, there is a general election, but only after the Lesters have had their way with the candidates who wish to prevail in the general election. And number two, we can say, obviously, dependence upon the Lesters in Lesterland will produce a subtle, understated, we could say, camouflaged bending to keep these Lesters happy. And number three, reform that angers the Lesters, we might observe, is highly unlikely. Okay, so that's the picture of Lesterland. Lesterland, right? Problem in our government is not citizens united i want to suggest the problem is lesterland because i want you to see three things that follow from lesterland number 1 the united states is lesterland united states is lesterland the united states also has two elections one election is the general election the other we should call the money election in the general election the citizens get to vote if you're over 18 some states if you have an id in the money election it's the funders who get to vote the relevant funders and same catch, to run in the general election, one must do extremely well in the money election. You don't necessarily have to win, but you must do extremely well. And here's the key. There are just as few relevant funders in our democracy as there are Lester's in Lesterland. Now you say, really? 0.05%? So here are the numbers from this recent election. 0.3% of America gave $200 or more to any federal candidate in the 2012 election. 0.055 gave the maximum amount to any candidate in the 2012 election. 0.01, the 1% of the 1%, gave $10,000 or more to federal candidates in this 2012 election. 0.0003% gave $100,000 or more. In my favorite statistic, 0.000042%. For those of you doing the numbers, you know that's 159 Americans gave 60% of the super PAC money that was spent in this 2012 election. So I'm a lawyer. I look at 0.3, 0.055, 0.01. I think it's fair for me to say 0.05% is a pretty good estimate of the relevant funders in this election system. And in this sense, these funders are our Lester's. Indeed, if you think about all the great stuff said about the small dollar contributions in two thousand and twelve total amount of small dollar contributions in two thousand and twelve was in the presidential election was three hundred and thirteen million dollars thirty four Lesters gave as much as all the small dollar numbers combined. OK, so like we can say about Lesterland, this is what we can say about USA land number one. Citizens United is absolutely correct. The people have the ultimate influence over the elected officials. But as in Leicesterland, only after the funders have had their way with the candidates who want to prevail in that general election. And number two, obviously this dependence upon the funders produces a subtle, understated, camouflaged bending to keep these funders happy. Candidates spend anywhere between 30 and 70 percent of their time raising money to get back to Congress or to get their party back into power. As any of us would, as they do this, they develop a sixth sense, a constant awareness about how what they do will affect their ability to raise money. They become, in the words of the X-Files, shapeshifters. As they constantly adjust their views in light of what they know will help them to raise money, not on issues 1 to 10, but in issues 11 to 1,000. Leslie Byrne, a Democrat from Virginia, describes that when she came to Congress, she was told by a colleague, quote, always lean to the green. Then to clarify, she went on, he was not an environmentalist. (laughs) And then point number three, reform that angers the funders, is in our system, we could say, highly unlikely. So that's my first claim. The United States is Lesterland. Here's the second claim. The United States is worse than Lesterland. Worse than Lesterland. Because in Lesterland, you can imagine if we Lesters get a letter from the government that says, "You get to pick who the candidates will be who run in the general election," you can imagine we would at least aspire to some kind of aristocracy of ideals to make the government a better place. You know, Lesters come from all parts of society. There are black, Lesters, white. Lesters, not so many women, Lesters, but put that aside one second. We come from all that we might think. It's our job to act in the interest of Lesterland. It's at least we could say, possible the Lesters act for the good of Lesterland. But in our land, in this land, in USA land, the Lesters act for the Lesters, because the shifting coalitions of people who comprise the .05 percent are coalitions driven by the issues just over the horizon that will guide what Congress is addressing after that election. And they are not being driven by a conception of the public interest. So in this sense, the United States is worse than the Lesterland. And then number three. Whatever one, wants to say, whatever one wants to say about Lesterland against its tradition in our land, in USA land, Lesterland is a corruption, to respond to Roger's question from the previous section. A corruption, by which I don't mean cash secreted in brown paper bags to members of Congress, by which I don't mean Rob Lagojevich's sense of corruption, by which I don't mean any illegal act, nothing to do with quid, pro, quo, corruption, or influence peddling. What I mean is corruption relative to the framers' baseline. The only corruption the framers were concerned about. Right? The framers gave us what they called a republic. But by a republic, they meant a representative democracy. And by a representative democracy, as Federalist 52 tells us, in the words of Madison, they meant a government that would have a branch that would be, quote, dependent upon the people alone. So here's their model of government, the people and the government. I do my own slides. It's cool the way that bounces like that. Okay, so the people and the government producing an exclusive dependency, and so would the public good be found through that exclusive dependency. But here's the problem. Congress has evolved a different dependence no longer dependence upon the people alone, but increasingly a dependence upon the funders too. This is a dependence, and it's different and conflicting from a dependence upon the people alone so long as the funders are not the people. This is a corruption, a corruption of the design and the intended set of influence that the framers gave us in designing a republic. Now, my view is this corruption has an effect. We could mark its effect first by thinking of its effect on the perception people have of our government. Because the fact is, Americans believe, and I think they're right to believe, but this is a separate question. Americans believe, quote, money buys results in Congress. For a poll I conducted for my book that I published last fall, we found 75% of Americans affirmed that claim. A little bit higher Democrats and Republicans, but I guarantee you before the Republicans took control of the House in 2010, it was just as many Republicans as Democrats. So here's the one thing we Americans all believe. Money buys results in Congress. Producing view number two, that belief weakens trust in the way the institution is functioning. Last year, ABC and New York Times found that 9% of Americans expressed confidence in Congress. 9%. That number is probably 5% now. We just have to think about this number in context. It's certainly the case, at the time of the American Revolution, a higher percentage of Americans had confidence in the British crown than who have confidence in our Congress today. And that leads to point number three, weakening trust weakens the drive to participation. Rock the Vote, which organizes and turns out young voters, and in 2008, turned out the largest number of young voters in the history of voting. The numbers aren't yet final for 2012 found in 2010 that a significant number of their new voters are not going to vote, so they asked them why. The number one reason by far, two to one, over the second highest reason, was no matter who wins, corporate interests will still have too much power and prevent real change. And it's not just kids. Contrary to the suggestion this morning, the vast majority of people who could have voted in 2010 did not vote, in my view, in part at least because of this belief. And even in this presidential election, 40% who could have voted did not vote in part at least because of this belief. Now, that's perception. But it's not mere perception, because this perception has a real effect. It has an effect on how people engage with their government, which is reason enough, in my view, to drive to systems that might change that perception. But independent of perception, let's focus on a reality. And by reality, of course, in a Cato Institute, I mean to point to the economy here, the economy of this uh, uh, political system. Because this corruption has its own economy. And the economy has two components. One is an economy of stop, and the other is the economy of extortion. So the economy of stop, I think, drives us to understand, to point to a certain instability that has developed inside of our government. Any system where the tiniest slice of the general public dominates in the funding produces a system where a tiny number of Americans can effectively block any change. And it will always be that, or at least almost always be that, in the context where so much dependency exists on such a tiny number of participants. Because literally, it's just a couple thousand who have to band together with these kinds of contributions to effectively make it possible that in our structure of separated powers, you can block any change. This is an economy that depends upon polarization. People point to polarization as the cause. Polarization here is in part an effect. It depends upon the dysfunction. Because the more dysfunctional the institution is, the easier it is to sell this opportunity to block. Dysfunction is the business model, which is why, as these journalists, Lee Fang points out in The Nation, lobbyists um, uh, who profit from the dysfunction of this system are in part fighting against the reform of the Senate, which might weaken the opportunity to block change. And I think the point is, if you stand back from all of these issues anybody cares about, whether it's Healthcare reform on the left or government bailouts on the right, whether it's global warming on the left or complex tax system on the right, whether it's financial reform on the left or financial reform on the right, if you connect the dots here and understand the structure of incentives this economy has produced, we recognize there is no possibility for any sensible change until you change this corruption because it's this corruption that makes real rent-seeking possible. So that's the first dynamic of the opportunity for stop, uh, to stop. The second dynamic is the economy of extortion. Because I've got you to focus on the Lester's here, the 0.05%, but I want you to think about the 0.00014%, namely members of Congress. Because as in any system of dependency, the dependent creates its own dependencies. So Congress, the dependent, creates its own dependencies in the society or in the economy as a way to feed its dependency. So, for example, two years ago, the Wall Street Journal was puzzled at the rise of these tax extenders, extenders which are provisions that extend a special tax benefit and typically um, extended for another limited period of time, which then raises the question of another extension. And the puzzle the journal faces, why is there such a a significant rise in these extenders? But from the perspective I've been offering here, the reason should be obvious, right? The first extender is given to us by Reagan, 1981, the Research and Development Tax Credit. They made that temporary so as to test whether it worked. And they asked the question after a period of time, did it work? And Democrats and Republicans alike agreed that it did work. It made sense, absolutely made sense for this to be part of our tax code. But the puzzle is, it's still temporary to this day. So why is it? What explains its temporary character? Well, as Rebecca Kaiser writes in the Georgia Law Review, the principal recipients of the research credit are large US manufacturing corporations. These business entities are more than willing to invest in lobbying activities and campaign donations. Um, The Institute for Policy Innovation puts it a little bit more sharply. They say, this cycle has repeated for years. Congress allows the credit to lapse until another short extension is given, preceded, of course, by a series of fundraisers and speeches about the importance of nurturing innovation. Congress essentially uses this cycle to raise money for re-election, promising industry more predictability the next time around. The dependent creates its own dependencies. Or think about the context of Medicare. Medicare has, in the 1990s, had something called the sustainable growth rate, which was a system to plan to cut the reimbursement to doctors from Medicare. The plan was we would cut this a certain amount each year so that eventually the amount Medicare was giving back to doctors would be um, reduced. That's created a cycle which is as predictable as cold Januarys in December, which is every single year this issue comes up, the doctors get a doc fix. A doc fix is a delay of this reduction, and that delay of the reduction comes after an enormous amount of lobbying to doctors, flushes an enormous amount of money into the system in exchange for this fix. Or think, for example, of the fiscal cliff legislation we've just seen The titles, of course, around the description here are many and hilarious. But this change, of course, had tax extenders, just like I've described. It had the doc fix in it too. But the interesting one that came out this week was this gift to drug makers. There was a provision that was going to force a change in the way that Amgen, um, a drug that's used for dialysis, would be priced. That was delayed for two more years. After it was delayed two years originally, the cost to taxpayers is something like $500 million because of that extension. But that extension is something that will come up again and again. And my prediction is, so long as this is the system, the system will continue to support the extension. Um, Or it's not just tax policy. Um, This, of course, as you know, is the Telecommunications Act, very clearly obviously represented here. It has two provisions related to the internet. Al Gore had the idea that we restructure this, when he was vice president, to create a new Title VII. The Title VII would have all internet-related infrastructure under it, but it would be fundamentally deregulated. Far more uh, greater deregulation than is being discussed right now in the context of any of the changes for a broadband access. But when his chief took this idea to Capitol Hill, as the chief reported it back to me, this is the answer they got from Capitol Hill, hell no. If we deregulate these guys, how are we going to raise money from them? Now, this is the economy of extortion. Extortion enabling fundraising because fundraising is the key to the activity that this Congress engages in. Okay, If that's the problem, what's the solution? Just two minutes. Okay, Remember, the problem here is not money in the abstract. The problem here is not the amount of money. Like Brad Smith, I don't know how much money our system should have in the political system. I support, um, as Ray was saying earlier this morning, the idea that maybe there should be more money in the political system. The problem here is the kind of disciplining practice, to invoke a kind of reference that I know is very familiar here at Cato Foucault, a disciplining practice um, of candidates spending tons of time fundraising, number one, from a tiny slice of America. Now, it's not a solution to that problem, not even close to talk about things like the Disclose Act. Of course, my view is we ought to have disclosure, but it doesn't solve this problem at all. No change in this dynamic. It's also not a solution to talk about the sort of thing that Common Cause is now pushing in their amendment to 2012, these slogans of corporations are not persons or money is not speech needing to be inserted in the Constitution. If tomorrow we could get both of those inserted into the Constitution, there would be no change to this dynamic of tons of time fundraising from the tiniest slice of America. And it's not quite enough of a reform to talk about an idea that Roger has talked about and other people are talking about to say, well, let's just repeal all campaign contribution limits. Because while that change would significantly reduce the amount of time you need to fundraise, rather than talking to thousands of people, you might need to just talk to 20, it would only increase the kind of corruption that I'm describing here, which is a corruption of dependency upon the tiny slice of the lexters. The only solution, it seems, is to find a different way to fund campaigns. This has pushed people to talk about matching funds. Michael's work has been, um, for many years, focused on matching funds. The Fair Elections Now Act was pushing the idea of matching funds tied to a uh, pretty substantial subsidy in addition. This would increase the number of small contributions, wouldn't necessarily increase the number of small contributors. That's the concern, or not dramatically. So in my view, what would be enough is to think about complementing these matching systems with something Bruce Ackerman and Ian Ayers described in their voting with dollars, the voucher system. I extended this in Republic Loss to make participation conditional upon only taking vouchers and small contributions. That idea is now being built upon by Congressman Sarbanes in his Grassroots Democracy Act, which has a matching fund proposal, a tax credit proposal, and a a pilot for the idea of vouchers. It's the idea behind the Americans Anti-Corruption Act. It's the idea that public's campaign has been talking about since the beginning of their work. It's a solution that says, we get more citizens in the project of funding campaigns, ideally all citizens playing the role of relevant funders and not just the Lesters. Thank you very much.
0: Uh, thank you, Larry. Don Aganda? <laughs> <Is that you? laughs> just that
2: First, I want to thank uh, John Samples and Cato for putting this on and for the invite. It's an honor to be here. Um, there's not a lot of folks who are put in charge of federal agencies who spend their spare time reading publications from think tanks, and there's even less of us who spend time reading those of, of Cato, which is unfortunate. But um, it's an honor to be here as, as, as someone who is has gravitated towards uh, folks who work at Cato uh, from time to time I, uh, I appreciate the opportunity to be here the topic is Citizens United in the future a topic I love because there is no wrong answer and it really fits right into my wheelhouse of those who have seen me before where I really just get to make it up as I go along and sound like I I know what I'm talking about because I have a title uh, at the Federal Election Commission but um, there is, and I'm not, I don't come from the academic world. I come from a world where I, I, I was in private practice, as as Michael mentioned in my bio. I represented a number of politicians, party committees, uh, political actors, consultants. Um, so I come at this from that perspective, and I also come at this from the perspective of someone who grew up in politics, who had family members, who were elected officials. And when you grow up in that world, uh, things that seem normal to me seem probably bizarre to those who don't grow up in that world. Um, So where are we? Well, there will be continued calls to quote-unquote fix Citizens United or overturn Citizens United or the like. Uh, I don't think that's going to stop. The editorial pages tend to continue to run the same editorial every three to six months uh, calling for this. Right now there's a push for a constitutional amendment. Um, Reports uh, are that the president may support it, not that that's particularly relevant to the amendment process. Uh, House Democrats have an election reform task force. Uh, and uh, I have never had to try to get an amendment passed, but I understand it takes a supermajority of both chambers, and then I think three quarters of the state. So I'm not sure that's a short-term fix. Uh, maybe like the 27th Amendment, then a couple hundred years it'll it'll pass. Uh, but what does reverse really mean? And this, this is troubling when I hear people talk about reversing Citizens United, because let's remember what the case was about. And it's not it's not about making corporations persons for the first time or any of this inflamed rhetoric that one hears. It was about the government banning a movie that referenced Hillary Clinton that said things like she was unfit to be commander-in-chief. And it wasn't banning a movie in all, in all forum. It was only banning a movie that would be available on pay-for-view cable so an adult could not watch something in the privacy of their own home on pay-per-view cable because McCain-Feingold banned it. That was the issue in Citizens United. So if one wants to reverse Citizens United, do you really want to ban movies? The answer perhaps is yes, uh, which is why I do not want to reverse Citizens United. The second issue that came out of Citizens United is this idea of, of all new avenues of disclosure. Well, I'm not really sure where this comes from when one actually reads the opinion and reads, reads, reads the prior opinions. The reality is the Supreme Court has upheld some disclosure. It has struck other disclosure. Um, McCain-Feingold did impose some new disclosure requirements. They were upheld in the McConnell case. Uh, and an as-applied challenge was brought by Citizens United. That was turned back by the court. And what they upheld was a, a essentially a one-page disclosure regime for— television and radio ads, uh, and perhaps movies that air on television, uh, uh, run within a a well-defined proximity to a federal election that reference a candidate. Um, This does not somehow give license to all sorts of other expansive disclosure regimes. Recall from, from Buckley versus Vallejo, Buckley limited the reach of disclosure, even that which could be deemed intended to influence elections. Um, this Supreme Court struck disclosure in the Davis case, which, which most have, have written off as a, as, a, as a one-off on the Millionaire's Amendment case. But if you, if you read the language of Davis, uh, they made clear you cannot have free, uh, free-floating disclosure regimes um, well, uh, of the sort that some are now uh, proposing. Um, lost in this shuffle are, are cases such as NAACP versus Alabama and McIntyre versus Ohio. Uh, which which upheld the ability to speak anonymously um, so there there is quite a bit of precedent on the on the less disclosure uh, side of, of, of the aisle it's just see the, the latest case upheld a little bit of disclosure so therefore this must be some seismic shift I just I don't buy it I think it's too early to say that that there's all sorts of new avenues for disclosure there's a number of legislative proposals the Disclose Act The prior panel mentioned it it's it's mentioned mentioned over and over again it had, it had a lot to do with with government action not a lot to do with disclosure uh, it, it was it was quite unwieldy um, senator murkowski uh and senator wyden i believe have have uh i don't know if they've actually introduced the bill but they've they've sent draft language around uh as another way to fix the problem and then there's there's other other statutes i don't know have been introduced but but various uh, ref, uh people associated with the reform industry have have floated different proposals Um, the central problem with, with all of these uh, aside from the merits is that at least today they, they're not going to pass. Uh, so, so, um, the question is what really is realistic, um, uh, down the road. Now, what, what I am hearing though are a number of incumbents making noise, um, and not a lot, but enough about these, all these negative ads, um, Folks run for office. They come to D.C. waving their, wa- 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 their copy of the Constitution, and then after a few cycles of having issue ads or, or even express advocacy run against them that they don't think are fair, they start saying things like, "We really need to figure out who's behind these ads." It's a it's a natural it's a natural tendency of incumbents, and you are hearing some Republicans in both in in the Senate and the House have made noises that maybe we do need more disclosure. Um, it's not enough where it reaches critical mass. But remember, McCain-Feingold, Shaves Man, took years and years and years to get to the point where it actually passed. So this is, I see it as more of a long-term uh, discussion, not something that's just going to be slapped together and passed overnight. But, you know, incumbency does funny things um, The people who are otherwise would, would, would not insist upon disclosure of criticism of the government. Once one becomes part of the government, uh, criticism, criticism of it starts to sting And come a little too close to home second reason why I think many of these proposals don't work is I think they come at the come at the so-called problem from the wrong angle Um, and they they fail to appreciate the true impact that McCain Feingold citizens United and a host of other cases has had on uh, how we conduct our elections Um, so before one fixes a a problem there needs to be an agreement on what the problem is when incumbent politicians talk about the need to know who is behind all these shadowy ads um, so the voters have, have information, to me, that rings hollow. Um, first, uh, there is quite a bit of disclosure already. Um, when you watch TV ads, there is a disclaimer as to who pays for it. Um, they, they, they tend to file electioneering communication reports or independent expenditure reports with the Federal Election Commission. States have laws on this as well. Um, sometimes they do disclose donors. Uh, Sometimes they don't the the to oversimplify the current law if someone gives money that is to be spent on a Election-related ad then their their identity is disclosed Of course the reformers will say but no one actually will earmark it in that way Which may may be true and then there's the super PACs which actually do disclose just like a regular PAC does I've read a number of editorials and news stories and, and, and people who claim to be pundits in this area talking about the secret super PACs, and we need to have the super PACs disclosed. They they already do. So we can't really legislate something that's already the law. Um, and uh, two, uh, some have already conceded that disclosure is designed to chill speech. It mentioned, the first panel mentioned this. Senator Schumer uh, is characterized in the first panel as already poisoned the well on this, with how, how we characterize the, the Disclose Act. Um, third speech speech uh, which is critical of, of incumbents um, it, it seems more that the incumbents wish to know who's behind the ads it doesn't really seem to be done because the body pu- public has a right to know the reality is there are there is a, 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 a huge mass of disclosure I can't imagine voters actually sifting through all this stuff because it is just it is it is it is it is, it is too much as, as it is um, and then finally none of these proposals, ever talk about anonymous speech in cases like NAACP versus Alabama, or McIntyre v. Ohio. They may give lip service to it. But what's, what, what is true is is there's, there's never been a serious discussion about what I call a bailout. What, what kind of showing does one have to make um, to, to not have to disclose, even under the current law? The FEC has done it through a series of advisory opinions. We have one coming up on the Socialist Party, whether they have to disclose. For years, they have not. Uh, because they've always been able to make a showing, but what really is the standard? Is it broken bones and, and bloody noses or is it economic harm? Is it boycotts? The government has never really said what one has to do to say that you don't have to disclose and when you go to the government to ask Permission aren't you then telling them who you are? It's a it's, a, it's an interesting circle that you're in where you have to say who you are to get permission to not say who you are when you finally speak um, Another problem that raises the idea that it distorts the process um, and when I hear politicians say this, it seems like it seems like more self-serving incumbent protection. Um, after all, the First Amendment at its core is to protect uh, uh, the, the the criticism of those very incumbents. Um, and 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 the reality is, you did have corporate money being spent in connection with elections, which is why McCain-Feingold included the electioneering communication ban in the first place. They were issue ads. They'd say, call so-and-so and tell them to cut taxes, or call so-and-so and tell them to keep fighting for us. But they avoided the construction of the statute that the Supreme Court and Buckley put on, which was the the, the words of advocacy. So you still had corporations and unions and others spending a tremendous amount of money uh, that were not counted as campaign ads. So when you see it, 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 various graphs that say, well, the outside group spending has gone up considerably, it has when one just plays the definitional game of what's now considered a campaign ad. Um, it's not clear to me that spending in general to affect public policy and elections and the line between the two blurs is, is, is all that different. Um, another point of the problem is, is really it's been raised before corruption and what is corruption. A lot of this does not seem to get at the corruption rationale or the appearance of corruption. It gets it more of finally um, something that really Citizens United, I think, hopefully blew out entirely, which is the equal speech rationale, which permeates so much of federal election law. Um, This this being said, there is still a kernel of truth in all these these definitions of the problem, Um, but the the cause of the problem is, in many ways, the the very reform laws, well-intentioned as they may have been, um, that that, that have caused the the problem. Ultimately, the candidate's voice is getting lost in, in the elections, and and as one who um, comes from the world I come from, that's not a constitutional justification. It's not even really a sufficient policy justification. But the reality is, voters do need to vote for candidates. And when they go into the in the polling place, they ought to really be making a choice between two people and what they represent in a broad scope, not based upon a single issue or something they just saw on television briefly or what the nightly news tells them to do or that sort of thing. Um, ultimately, I think the central goal Uh, should be to have the candidate's voice be the central voice in American politics. Um, But one of the real effects of the current regime is that those candidates are being drowned out. Voters are not being fully informed. Um, Second, the power has shifted. Uh, Many in the reform industry wanted to change the Beltway culture. Well, they they actually have, not in the way they wanted, but it really has changed the culture. Uh, it has shifted power away from party committees and the operatives who used to be employed by party committees, and to those who work in the more nonprofit world, uh, single-issue groups and, and, and those who are able to um, um, either go on TV or telephones or mail or, or even direct contact to influence people's views. Which brings me to, I think, the third change, which is more how lobbying is going to be conducted. Um, the, the money guys and the access guys are always probably going to be around in some form. But now you're going to have a third way where it's, I think it's going to be easier to influence an elected official's vote by dealing with his constituents directly in his district via paid advertising or, or, or other sorts of things that I think have been legal for a long time but were cloudy because of uh, various laws and regulations that Congress passed, the FEC administered and the like. Um, and as I mentioned before, it's really rejected the equal speech argument, which has permeated so much of federal election law. Um, so what? where do we go from here? Can there be legislation? So far, most folks have said, no, it's not going to happen. I, I, I'm not so sure about that, because as I alluded to early on, there are people who who um, should not be saying things that are saying things. Now, Senator McConnell has, has staked out his position. He is, he is the minority leader in the Senate, um, uh, and and I, I think in the short term, that's going to hold, hold true. But the long term, where do, where do we go? I think McCain-Feingold needs to be revisited. Recall it was sold as a compromise, a carefully co- a balanced compromise that was designed to reduce the negative ads, hence the electioneering communication ban, and break the soft money link between polit- uh, politicians and soft money. Well, post-Citizens United, half of McCain-Feingold has been lopped off. And what you are left with is the restrictions primarily on the party committees. So you have half a loaf that I think has really hurt candidates and ultimately hurt party committees, which in my view has been a stabilizing voice in democracy for years and years and years, um, and it, particularly at the state and local level. Those who say parties continue to raise the same amount of money or more money than they, then they raised before mccain Feinkel missed the point because they see money as a zero-sum game. I see it as a tool that buys things. It buys polling, it buys information, it buys mail, it buys TV. The cost of all those have gone up, in large part because it's just how it happens. Advertising costs go up, um, but also because folks can make a lot more money now doing the single-issue groups. It's tougher for party committees to get the talent that they used to be able to get because there's more competition. Uh, for that town. So things become much more um, expensive. I think the theme of any sort of legislation has to, be, has to focus more on grassroots. The idea of let's undo the soft money ban of the national parties and that kind of talk, I don't think that is going to get much traction at all. But I think um, looking more at state and local parties is, is something that there may be some agreement on. Something McCain-Feingold did was federalize much of, of state and local elections via this concept known as federal election activity. The way I explain it to people who are not immersed in the minutiae is anything that a party committee would want to do near an election now has to be paid for with money subject to the federal limits and prohibitions. Uh, even if they really don't care about their local member of Congress who is in a safe seat and is not going to lose uh, no matter how hard the, the, others, the other team tries, so so for state and local candidates, McCain-Feingold has caused a, a, a problem with the parties. Um, second, the coordination rules that the FEC has promulgated in the wake of McCain-Feingold reached out and touched party committees in a way that I don't think accurately reflects reality. Uh, I think it should be a standard that reflects the amount of discussion parties have. It's not. It's not corrupting. It ought not be part of the standard. But the coordination rules reaches all sorts of things that really are not tied. to to corruption or its appearance. The contribution limits, some had talked to this already. If if they had been index for inflation the whole time, they'd be significantly higher, particularly those to party committees. Um, There's a biannual limit uh, on on the amount an individual can give. In total, this causes party committees on the same side of the aisle to fight amongst themselves over who gets the money. Um, There's a number of other little party issues that I think uh, there could be agreement on in the bipartisan fashion. Uh, and the, the question of which comes first with, with chicken or the egg does the law push how political operatives do campaigns or does the opposite happen the reality is the way campaigns do mail is they sit a bunch of volunteers in a warehouse and stamping post on the issue they don't do this because it's efficient it's because the law allows them to do it and not a spending limit so it's a lot of these little things that I think have outlive their, their usefulness when you compare that that sort of activity to what's really going on um, Finally, there is some disclosure that that could be cleaned up. The FEC has made a hash over the difference between electioneering communications and independent expenditures. When it's gone to court, they just seem to get conflated. They're actually two entirely different statutes. And what the FEC has done is take a, 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 a test that the Supreme Court used to limit the reach of the electioneering communication ban and borrow it and put it on the independent expenditure. Uh, reporting regime. So what you have is essentially a catch-22. You're not entirely sure which report to file. To put it in English, Hillary the movie was deemed the functional equivalent of express advocacy um, by everyone in the Citizens United case. But if you would apply how the FEC looks at its own disclosure regime, it's not entirely clear that that would not be an independent expenditure. Now, this is, again, just two completely different reporting regimes with different thresholds for for triggering it, uh, different timing, different amount of reports, and if you're trying to figure this out and you have 24 hours or 48 hours to file one of these reports, which is the case, it is really impossible. So I would see probably more litigation on that point. Um, with that, I'll, I'll, I'll sit down now and, and hopefully we'll have some questions and can continue our discussion.
0: Thank you, Don. And now it's uh, John Samples from the Cato Institute.
3: <laughs> Every time I follow Larry... I'm reminded that I'm not Mick Jagger. <laughs> now, you, you may wonder what that means. Uh, but if you know that one time uh, Mick Jagger had to follow Tina Turner on stage, and only he could have done it. So. As the, and if you're under 50, just Tina Turner, Mick Jagger, Google it. You can laugh at my joke later. Uh, I want to try to integrate some responses to Larry down the <laughs> line, but I had some other things I wanted to talk about. Uh, because I, I sort of wanted to say something about where we go from here, where we are right now, and where we're going. Uh, from a liberty point of view, where are we right now, right? And I think the answer has to be that there has been for at least since probably about 1995, and particularly because of Senator McConnell, uh, a strategy of just saying no to uh, campaign finance uh, <coughs> regulation restrictions. And that has worked remarkably well. It's true, McCain-Feingold passed. But in the end, it amounted to uh, a soft money ban after uh, Citizens United and other legal cases. Uh, It has had a remarkable effect. But we have to have the answer. We have to ask, I think, why is it that Just Say No had a remarkable effect? Well, part of it is, I think, the appeal is that it fits pretty well with the First Amendment. After all, the First Amendment does say, Congress shall make no law bridging the freedom of speech. It itself is embodies a notion of just saying no to Congress and, try and saying consistently across the board, that's our position has been successful. And as I mentioned earlier in my comment, also giving in a little bit leads to, I think, a set of problems, and certainly in Senator McConnell's experience, that's so. What I want to ask is, can that is that the future? Is that the way to go and what remains to be done? So that is to say, what kind of restrictions are there still on uh, speech? And I want to start with incremental things that are going to be discussed and then try to integrate something about Larry's comments in there and then go to non-incremental outcomes before finishing. So let's start with the incremental. What are the prohibitions? Uh, the prohibition should be of the greatest concern to people who concerned about freedom of speech or about liberty in general. What prohibitions are there on financing political activity? Well, there are. There's, uh, in terms of prohibitions, probably the one that sticks out is uh, prohibition on foreign nationals being involved. Uh, And so really, I think the decision's been made here. We can go on about that. You can actually argue about it. The the restriction on foreign nationals is probably not as solid as most people think it is. Uh, But I don't see the point. I mean, really, in arguing for foreign national participation, it's an idea that's so heavily uh, weighted with negativity, that there's really nothing worth the cost of uh, bringing that about, I think. So I think that's probably going to be not uh, or, and should not be at the center of uh, concerns, at least in the near future. In terms of constraints, there's going to there are contribution limits. Those contribution limits within the system are going to continue. Uh, Heaven and Earth was moved in McCain-Feingold and part of a big deal to get... Um, contributions raised inside the system, uh, contributions raised to a point where they were still below the inflation rate of 1974, so you still hadn't really recovered the real value of them. Um, and in any case, if you want to go outside the contribution limits, there's likely to be vehicles or organizations or your ability to do so will be guaranteed after uh, Citizens United. So the real question is, Do you, again, do you want to go down this stage, put a lot of effort in trying to get rid of contribution efforts when, in fact, they can be, if you want to give more than that, there's a possibility, though not uh, in terms of giving directly to candidates or parties. There's the party coordination limits that were mentioned earlier today. I won't say more about that. I think that has a good chance of falling, but it hasn't fallen yet. Incumbents may need the parties, and they may loosen those limits, and that uh, will be something that we could focus on and mention, I think, if you're concerned about these issues. But, uh, you know, I do think there is an issue that wasn't raised earlier today in talking about parties. Parties have, and uh, enhancing their role in our politics, um, you know, and libertarianism, I think, our, and libertarians are particularly sensitive, even if they're not uh, particularly associated with uh. the party, that the sense that the parties have a kind of, central controlling role, and they don't like outside forces and so on, and therefore enhancing the party rules and the party role is actually something you probably is has downsides too. I suspect the answer, though, is the people who are outside the system now, I don't know this, but I suspect it's the case that if the rules of the game were different, that much of the money that goes to outside groups might well go to the parties, one or the other. Certainly highly ideological, uh, givers or donors during the uh, smart, uh, the soft money era, uh, that money found its way toward the parties. So I would suspect that would be so. And In that sense, the libertarian objection, but you're really preventing an outside force from having a role if you emphasize the parties, is not, I think, uh, good. Because I don't know that there's, a, there's some demand for that, but not a great deal. That brings us to public financing, and that's uh, where Professor Lessig leads us in his indictment of the current system, uh, leads us to public financing. I will say in, in, in his indictment, what I would say about it is, I think a lot of the empirical connections that he asserts exist are probably quite weak, and probably if someone who knew the entire literature about this, which is not a conclusive literature, which is, I wanna mention that, but still that the idea that it weakens trust in Congress, uh, that The perception of corruption weakens trust in Congress, that it weakens the drive to participation. There are a host of other variables and causes of this that have been explored and have been shown to have stronger effects. The belief that it leads to non-voting or that it leads to the poor perception of Congress. The studies of Congress have shown that you can explain the poor perception of Congress by looking at the performance of the economy and the fact that most Americans don't like conflict, confrontation, fighting with one another, all the stuff that goes on at a democracy. And yes, indeed, compromise has a big effect on driving down congressional approval ratings. Another empirical issue that I know something about that uh, Professor Lessig mentioned was the doc fix in Medicare. Again, what I would point you to is the, the money argument has been in the reform world and outside. It's, it's a single variable, it's a single cause explanation of all the things that go on in the world. The doc fix, why did it happen? The doc fix being the refusal to cut uh, provider uh, payments in the health, in the Medicare system. Well, then the answer is, obviously, is contributions and so on. But in fact, particularly in the 1997 period when there was a a, a cut in providers, they always go after the providers first, uh, what happens was that went into effect. And what happened? Well, people stopped providing Medicare to to, uh, the recipients of Medicare. That is, politically active people over 65. They went directly to their representative and so on. Surely enough, you ended up with a docks fix, which I suppose was fixed only with a fiscal cliff. My point being, there's another explanation. It always doesn't have to be a small group of people controlling everything. Which leads me to another question before I get back to public financing, which I think in some ways is more interesting than this. The whole. Remember, Professor Lessig's understanding of corruption is dependent on the phrase from Federalist Number Ten by James Madison, that any kind of motive or effort that is driven by anything other than the people alone, the Madison's uh, and the general understanding of what a republic was in Federalist Ten. But Federalist 10 says other things about the people alone and about republics. It, in fact, talks about how complicated the problem of who the people are and what they do and how you have a system that is a stable and long-lasting republic. In there, the concern, as you may recall from class or from a recent reading, is that Madison's concerned with factions. He's concerned with two kinds of factions, minority factions and majority factions. He's particularly concerned with majority factions and the effect they would have, as he says, on the rights of the minority and the permanent interest of the community. Now, as far as I know, if you look at the First Amendment, it doesn't say that you know, uh, Congress shall not abridge freedom of speech unless it's funded by a very small number of people in the primaries right in fact the people people have rights to do that i think that's part of the federalist number 10 idea is that people have a right to fund candidates to fund speech to make their case so I contend that the, the notion of the people alone is an ambiguous idea. But it's, it's a very effective rhetorical strategy because everybody knows what the people want. The only problem is everyone has a different conception of what the people <coughs> want, but in their own head, they know, of course, what the people alone would do and the things that are happening are different and so therefore we have corruption. Madison's Federalist Number 10 is very much more complicated than that. You're trying to have a system in which people uh, now, so perhaps Professor Lessig's response would be then. the the primaries are controlled by a small number of funders. Ask yourself this uh, question. If that is true, and these people are wealthy individuals, as is likely to be the case, why is it the case that during the period of the big money era, that is roughly 1996 and after, that both parties have become, including the Democratic Party, have become much more ideologically, that is, sorted. That is, the Democrats have become much more liberal during a period, and he didn't say it was just the Republicans that were controlled by their uh, small number of contributors in the primary, the, the Democrat is much, Democratic Party is much further to the left than it was uh, in, uh, say, 1996 or even 2000 and during this period. How does that square with the idea that a bunch of rich people control everything? It doesn't square very well. But the answer is, despite the fact that private uh money is a pox on the republic and about to destroy it, the answer is not getting rid of it, or at least not in the first instance getting rid of it, in part because it's unconstitutional and so on. But the answer is public financing, a voucher system. Now, the problem with public financing is, from a libertarian or liberty perspective, is that, uh, well, one thing you could have, you're going to coerce people to give up tax money to, for taxes, To spend on uh, public financing. Now, that's that's where you have to ask yourself, where does the coercion come in, and why does it? Now, as a matter of fact, most public financing campaigns aren't like that. In part because they found that it was very unpopular with most people. The problem of public financing, even if I were to agree with it uh, or be open to it, is that people don't want it actually. And that's one of the reasons. Incumbent uh, concerns is another, another reason why you don't have it. The other real problem is what might be called a slippery slope argument, a crowding out of private financing. That is, the idea is to get public financing. Public financing will then have, presumably for a number of reasons, great advantages, or it'll be, turn out to be a great idea, and at the end of the day, without actually banning private financing, you can simply crowd it out. You can think about this, whether people who give money now would essentially not give because of the public financing and so on. But generally speaking, the idea is to set up a system so that without forcing people, because I'm not going to uh, distort what he's saying, right? He's not saying ban private financing. You make it illegal. He say, but it is interesting to me that uh, Professor Lessig said and I think in passing, endorsed a a notion from public campaign that candidates, if they take public financing, they they pledge, and legally they could, I guess, be required to, I'm not sure, to take only public funds. So if you could get everyone to take only public funds, then essentially you have gotten rid of private financing. The long, the the big picture here is a concern. See, I think private financing acts as a real constraint on government, at least potentially so. It also can expand government. We have to be honest about these things. There is rent seeking that goes on, some of it in some measure, without getting out of hand. About this, some just some of it is caused by campaign or mediated by campaign contributions. However, what troubles me about public financing is that not that uh, if you had an all-voluntary system, including the money came from people voluntarily, uh, you would still have the problem that this might, in the end, be an attempt to actually crowd out or eliminate private financing. I think private financing in that Federalist 10 kind of world, you want people that aren't dependent for their money to run campaigns on the government. You want them to be able to constrain the government, and that's why it's important. Let me go. So there's other things that could be said. Many things could be said about what Professor Lessig said. Public financing, I would say, is this. It does strike me as, depending on how it's done, if it's done by on a voluntary basis, voluntarily funded, it's certainly, I think anyone would agree with this, it's certainly much less objectionable, if objectionable at all, uh, to a system in which um, you have restrictions and prohibitions, such as we've had for about 30 or 40 years. The tax credits also we probably want to talk about, because I think we may hear more about those. Uh, They have some of the same issues, I think. Now, I want to talk about disclosure real quickly. Disclosure is going to be what most people are going to be talking about, I think, for the next couple of years. Uh, We've had a disclosure system for many years in the United States. Um, We have, have attempted to have new disclosure rules about people running independent ads these, uh, and so on. The problem, but consider this. I mean, once you're outside the system and once, and you, according to Citizens United, you really are outside the sphere of corruption for, as a legal matter, right? So that means disclosure which has been approved by the Supreme Court, had basically two justifications for it that were constitutional. One was to prevent corruption. Well, if you're outside that kind of rationale, then that rationale for disclosing uh, these kinds of post-Citizens United spending is really gone. What you have is the other reason, which is that um, basically disclosure helps voters, it informs them, it educates them, it helps them cast their votes more sensibly and more in accord with their own concerns, right? And it does this by telling people they're supposed to look around and see how people they know uh, contributed, or that could be their neighbors. It could also be nationally renowned figures, endorsements. This is sort of cue-taking or heuristic theory that it helps um, uh, candidates, uh, helps voters, and gives them more information. And then this is the political science idea, because political science has shown, and I think maybe it's the only thing political science has shown beyond all doubt, is that voters, for the most part, except for perhaps 10% or maybe a few more, don't have very much information at all about candidates, elections, and politics. They need a great deal of information. One of the things that's going on here in general is a collective action problem. Someone's got to pay for informing voters and again, I would come back to the public financing issue, which is, um, it's pretty clear that citizens don't want to, actually, uh, which I think it could be seen as a problem, but it's also a fact, and it's a long, long-term long fact. Disclosure, uh, so if, my point being here about the information, if you just, dis- a lot of the things, disclosure of corporate uh, heads or the heads of uh, associations and so on, these people are not most voters and voters most in need of some kind of queuing some kind of disclosure are not going to have information about these people they're not going to get any useful information out of most of the things that are forced to be disclosed about citizens united and after kind of spending right they're not going to get any good cuz they don't they may or may not know who their can who the representative is how are they going to know what it means uh, that some individual's name or even uh, their job or whatever, is going to give them information. What I would say is that we on the liberty side need to do is come up with better alternatives. So to this point, the just say no strategy has been one of saying no, and I've I've indicated why I think that's been fantastically successful. With disclosure, I think the other side of it is we, we need to think about alternatives to the disclosure which has also the effect, probably, it's hard to show it definitively, of of chilling some speech, which is a First Amendment value. Could we have a kind of disclosure that neither chills speech and informs voters better? And if you have those two things, it would seem to me that would be something that wouldn't be particularly problematic from a liberty point of view, and it would be from a general point of view a win-win situation, uh, a reform you might want to think about. This is the idea that Bruce Kane has mooted about semi-disclosure, that advertisements of the independent sort would be identified not in relation to people, but in accord to the kind of company or corporation or interest that is involved. For after all, in the end, what the kind of information that and what you would get from people really is. Voters want to know and assess the information they get in a commercial or a, uh, a broadcast message, according to. Uh, the kind of interest they're worried about interest uh, uh, affecting the truth or falsity of what they're they if they want to assess it, okay? And that information, uh, that kind of argument has actually a constitutional status under Supreme Court doctrine. That's where semi-disclosure would answer that. It would give better information, and since the actual individuals would remain uh, un, not disclosed directly to the uh, uh, to the voter, uh, the chill would presumably be lessened. Although, of course, we—it it is also true, and there's nothing that can be done about this. It would be a lot of disclosure of individuals uh, in the pages of The New York Times and elsewhere, as we saw, have seen in, in several elections. But still, the official system would, uh, would not be that way. And that seems to me something that we can be behind on the liberty side, and also something that would point us toward uh, other... Alternatives. Now, I want to close with this, and it is, I guess I'm naturally pessimistic because I started by saying what a great success all of this has been. I've come to think in the last couple of months that the possibility of Citizens United and related, and st- Speech Now is directly linked to uh, Citizens United. If, you, if Citizens United were overturned, it's likely that Speech Now would go f- quickly thereafter since it followed quickly. I've come to think that it's it's more likely than I had thought that it might be overturned, and the, it won't. There won't be through constitutional amendment. It won't even be through a bill like Disclose, which was clearly an attempt to do that without directly confronting the court. It would be done by one of the five members of the majority leaving the court. I'll just leave it at that. Uh, and what would happen thereafter is I think President Obama would insist uh, as a matter uh, that whoever he uh, nominated, among other things, I don't know if he would directly, but they would. He, one of his priorities would be a person who would overturn Citizens United. And so you, you'd have a big fight, but you could end up with a five-person majority. For a while, I thought, well, it won't matter much because ultimately these people will, you know, you still have to pass a law through Congress, but you don't. I realized that the Vermont legislature could simply uh, pass a law, state law, banning all corporate spending, and that could go to the Supreme Court pretty quickly, and you could get Citizens United overturned. To have some kind of actionable federal kind of effect, of course, it would have to go through Congress again. There would have to be a law to reinstate uh, the status quo pre-Citizens United, and that might be very hard to do, but it is possible. So what I'm saying here, as I finish up, is that there's going to be, there is risk. And I think the risk is probably greater than people think about Citizens United. It is not yet stable. It is unfortunate, but true, that there is not a great deal of evidence that we have won the battle of public opinion. Citizens United, for whatever reasons, good and bad, is not a popular decision. I th- I, so I'm, I would be concerned about that. In that sense, I would think that it would make sense to begin to look for possibilities of a settlement that incorporates particularly speech now, but also Citizens United, and perhaps better alternatives on uh, uh, disclosure and other things, a settlement in which we can all agree to find some basis to going forward. And in part, I must say it's because I think in the end, we waste a lot of time, and it poisons the well of our discourse, campaign finance reform rhetoric. So with that, I've overdone my time, and I shall sit down. Thank you very much.
0: Thanks. Um, when when John asked me to moderate, he also invited me to step out of the role of moderator for for a couple of minutes uh, to make some comments, and so I'll do so, and I'll be very brief because it turns out that a fair amount of what I wanted to say or would have said, uh, John has already said. In the sense of framing uh, issues, uh, the the morning really has been framed by two questions. One is uh, what did change in after with citizens united or the cluster of events that we popularly label with citizens united and the other is what should change next um first so first what has changed um some things changed in fact uh, their previous speakers have spoken to that uh, presented different perspectives i don't need to repeat that um in law uh we've heard and and uh, Both Bob Bauer in the first panel and Brad Smith noted that it was a culmination of a long series of developments, which I think ultimately leads you to a point, to use a phrase that we've used at the Campaign Finance Institute and other publications, to a point where you can see that there are limits to what can be accomplished through a strategy of limits. Um, Now, it doesn't mean that Citizens United is. Done away with what one could possibly accomplish through through limits. Um, That is to say, uh, I do believe uh, that uh, that corporation that that um, contribution limits uh, do uh, relate to and prevent uh, examples of plenty of examples of extortion or and actual corruption in that direction. And that's both contributions to parties and to candidates. Uh, but limits or restrictions do not and cannot uh, alter the fundamental dependence issues that Professor Lesser talked about, or promote greater equality and participation, which I would be very frank in talking about. Um, nor do I, <coughs> do I think it appropriate to promote equality through restrictions but I do think it appropriate to promote it. Um, So when I shift to what should change, um, when you focus everything around Citizens United, uh, what you're focusing the discussion on is on what is present in the system. Um, And instead, I think Professor Lessig's remarks, and certainly the ones that the Campaign Finance Institute has talked about in its research, Uh, urges of focus on what is absent. Uh, And you cannot have an effect on what is absent uh, by restricting what is (laughs) present, or you don't have a direct effect. Um, Rather, you get that by focusing on matters that would build up rather than squeeze down. Now, will that happen? Will that approach become part of the public's action agenda? Well, in fact, it has already become part of the conversation agenda, which is an important part of the public agenda. Bills introduced in Congress uh, by people who are identified with the reform community are very, very different from the bills that were introduced (coughs) a half dozen years ago. And these will be talked about. Talking is the prelude to action. It's do I think there'll be action in the next two to four years? No, to pass a bill, not on the federal level, not directly. But on the state level, uh, these issues are on the action agenda, state and local. New York State, Los Angeles, um, and it's on, it's, it's on the conversation agenda, it's on the research agenda. Um, is it appropriate to look, to look at a possible use of tax money if the money is steered through, to, toward donors or through donor actions? We could debate that. I would argue yes. Um, but um, that would not, there's no way that, that such an agenda can, can or would crowd out independent spending uh, by private parties. Uh, so that's that I don't think is, a, is an issue. So that's the way I would frame it, uh, frame the discussion. Then in a sense, it's a conversation changer as well as a conversation starter. Having said that, uh, let me just tell you what we're going to do for questions and answers. You'll, you'll, uh, there are microphones. Please wait for the microphones. Uh, announce yourselves. Direct your questions to one of the three uh, speakers or all. Um, And um, where is the microphone now? We can start uh, where. So the microphone is already situated in the middle here. Yes. No. Here are the microphones. Put your hands up if you would like the microphone. (coughs) Um, And you may choose where you're going to. Or am I supposed to choose where? You choose. Okay. We have some people who haven't asked yet. There's one here. Here. Start there. We have one here. One there.
3: Uh, yeah, I'm David Williams. I guess I could describe myself as a democratic political operative. Um, I want to uh, direct a question to Mr. Samples and, and just take issue with your contention that public financing isn't popular. I would point to the voters in Maine and Arizona. They've adapted at the ballot public financing laws. I would argue that the people who don't like public financing are many incumbent politicians. I'm from Massachusetts. People may know In 1996, the people in Massachusetts overwhelmingly approved public financing, only to have the law repealed by the legislature. So I guess my question to you, Mr. Samples, and I'd like to have Professor Lessig comment, is what's your basis for concluding that people don't
1: want public financing?
3: Um, I agree with you about the incumbents. Uh, That's part of the problem. I think that problem might be overcome if it were popular. So actually seeing that incumbents are able to deal with it as they do, suggests that there's not an overwhelming urge for it. The reason, though, is uh, in my book uh, I wrote, I looked at polling going back to 1938, and admittedly most of it after Watergate. Uh, And the one thing I did notice is the general trend is that uh, while campaign finance reform generally gets a 60-40 majority uh, from people, generally speaking, for a long time, uh, with the exception of from about 1973 to 1979 you got anywhere from 55 to 60 against public financing now the campaign Finance Institute about a decade ago or so did uh, extensive kind of polling and also went into in-depth polling where they would talk about it I think Mike would say they probably got a different result uh, but I in general, I think that people just don't see it that way. I don't think it's. Ju- I think the incumbent resistance is not surprising, but at the same time, I think. And I would add one thing. You know, the next ten years is going to be. We're going to. The discretionary spending at the federal level is going to come under heavy pressure, and this will be seen as a weak claim. I would add too, but precisely because of what I take to be the polling data.
0: Uh, The question was also directed to Professor Lassie.
1: Yeah, um, one of the most troubling things about the polls is this is a confounding uh, fact about Americans, which is, as Claris published in a poll last summer, 80% of Americans believe that every campaign finance change has been designed with the purpose of protecting incumbents. So when you say... Congress has an idea. The idea is public financing. When the public says they don't like it, is that because of the attitude 80% of us have that we can't trust Congress to do something that's actually in the public interest, or because there's something about the particular poll or the idea that's bad? Now, I've seen you know, scads of polls here, and depending how things are framed, you can actually get the answer that I think you want, and I certainly want, which is very strong support for public funding. But I think, you know, part of the thing is, we, we, you know, everybody knows this, but nobody says it. Why do we trust what the polls say? Because there's such a terrible way of understanding what Americans, if they reflected on the issue in the right context, would agree about. You know, so if we had a deliberative poll like Fishkin c- conducts, where people had the chance to deliberate and understand the issues and were given the information, what would people say? You know, I, I'd bet a month's salary that people would say that they support a change that would remove the corrupting influence of money in, inside of politics. Fortunately, nobody took me up on that bet, so that's <laughs> off the table now. <laughs> okay, um,
0: oh, well, we had this gentleman has had his hand up for a while. right, gentleman, I'm pointing with the beard. Oh. Thank
2: you, I'm Gerald Chandler. This is for John Samples. You uh, quoted a bit, or talked a bit, about uh, Madison and, and the Federalist
0: Papers. Mm-hmm. Uh, he didn't disclose that he wrote them at the time. Was mm-hmm. that a bad idea?
3: Anonymous speech. Um, well, there's a couple of different forms of that. Uh, absent mandated disclosure, you would have probably anonymity, or you, if you weren't anonymous, it would be, uh, in other words, the newspaper would find out about it or media would find out about it. And there's really nothing you can do about it. Um, and there's also, and I think was mentioned by Larry, uh, there's a, been a proposal that instead of trying to have restrictions and so on, you, ha- you have forced anonymity of all um, uh, donors my problem there is I think that's an interesting idea, but the pro- I don't think that actually you could sustain that kind of anonymity. This uh, guy named Ken Mayer, student of Congress, made this argument, and I think th- that's probably correct. Uh, certainly anonymous speech has its role to play. I think that's certainly true. Uh, and primarily it's because of the chill. I think chilling disclosure, can lead to, so this is anonymity as an alternate non disclosure, can uh, chill speech very, very certainly. But the problem with that is it's very hard to measure that and to see generally how much that happens. Uh, it's just, a, this, it comes from the situation itself, actually, which is that um, if you're giving money to get someone out of office, and if you're giving large sums of it, in particularly, uh, the the member you're attacking, for example, or trying to get out of office, may have may not seek retribution against you or anything like that. But that doesn't mean you have to believe that that the, going in. And so you people might not fund kinds of. Now it's also true that there's a lot of funding that people spend hundreds of millions of dollars. Uh, in situations that you would think would lead to real threats and do lead to real threats to people. So in those situations, I think anonymity is good. But what I was trying to do was to get beyond all of these kinds of debates and suggest we start thinking about a new kind of disclosure that actually is anonymous, but at the same time helps voters. And I think that unless you believe, and which I actually think, disclosure is a large part of it, it's about trying to prevent, pe- trying to control the other side's contributions. If you if you believe that, then my proposal's not going to work. But I think my proposal for anonymous and yet informative disclosure uh, meets all the problems we've talked about. So that's a long-winded
0: answer to that. We me. have two, right here. Start here and then go back there. Uh,
1: to Mr. Lessig, um, in the current world uh, that you have described, where uh, there are special interest, interests that thrive on gridlock, and where we have uh, the dependents have created their own self perpetuating dependencies, um, what do you see, assuming that there is nothing on the horizon to change the course that we're on? What do you see that's down the road? And more specifically, what's the worst possible or imaginable outcome that you see for Lesterland? (laughs) Um, Well, it's a very, very dark story, right? Um, Because I don't think there's a single important issue that we face um, that we're gonna get a sensible answer on, uh, except for ones that get exploded for exogenous reasons. So, for example, you know, we there might be a there might be something around guns that gets pushed because of the tragedy in Sandy Hook. Um, uh, the Republican Party might think it's about to be extinct if it doesn't deal with immigration. Okay, so those are issues that you know, get pushed in a political way to get resolved in, in uh, inconsistent from the theory that I'm advancing. But you know, climate change, um, tax policy, deficit. Uh, uh, a healthcare system that actually is efficient and rational, financial reform. Like none of these issues, internet policy, uh, none of these issues can be addressed in a rational way, in a sensible way. And I don't mean liberal only. I'm talking about conservative issues too, unless you remove this dependency that allows the smallest proportion to block any of this kind of reform. Now, that you know, so, so my book, Republic Lost, is a dark story about this because I do think you know, we have to confront the fact that we've lost the capacity to govern in some important way because of the way we've allowed this dependency to overlay on top of a constitutional scheme that was already set up to facilitate lots of checks on a government ever doing anything. Like separation of powers is a much harder government to go- govern with already, but then lay this on top of it and you make it basically ungovernable. Now, um, you know, just one small quibble with something John said and then strongly supporting something John said. First of all, the dependency line that I point to is in Federalist 52, not 10. Dependency upon the people alone, dependent upon the people alone. And this is not because Madison thought that there was some interesting way to understand what the people wanted. Of course, that's insanely difficult. But what he's talking about is the dependency. And if you look at the framers, what the framers were obsessed about and the whole way they architected our government was to avoid the wrong dependencies and to assure, assert the right dependencies. So we want a judiciary dependent upon the law alone. Right, So we structure it to protect it from the wrong kind of dependencies upon Congress. We want an executive that can't buy Congress. So we have all sorts of separations that make sure that the right dependencies on Congress exist. So that's, a, that's because they were obsessed with dependency in the way that Jane Eyre was obsessed with dependency. I mean, Jane Austen was obsessed with dependency. And, and you know, the dependency proper dependency produces the independence they thought was so important. But the part that's kind of optimistic, and I, and I want to really emphasize this point that John made, you know, I have enormous respect, John and I have been on a number of panels, and I have enormous respect with, with John is kind of unique in recognizing the way the debate has moved. You know, I think what Michael has been doing forever, and what some of us johnny come lately, have been trying to insist on, is the old debate, which Brad Smith was talking about was a debate where people were saying, shut up, stop talking. We want to silence you. We want to silence you. We want to silence you. That is not the debate today. The debate today is about what alternative ways of funding might reduce the kind of pressure that we think exists inside the system. Um, So small-dollar-funded systems, which uh, uh, Michael's Institute has been pushing and thinking about along long, is just another way of funding that makes it so the kind of dependency I'm talking about is easier to escape.
3: I just want to have a brief comment, <clears throat> and this is Larry and I are supposed to fight. I know, but uh, just more a positive comment, I suppose. I remember sitting in a, a House Administration Committee meeting on, and I was testifying about uh, the Fair Elections Now Act, which I had studied from its inception about 2005 or so. I was aware that Larry had become involved during that, and I came in at the end of the story, 2009 or so. And I sat there and listening to it and thinking wow Larry's had a really big effect on these people and it's been very positive because he had taken out most most of the restrictions that were in the system the gaming the system by the congress were gone he had but and he had brought something like he was going to give people a million and a half bucks to run against members of congress I was also thinking this will never pass because the members don't want it and the public is not going to be behind it too but I did think that Larry had a positive effect, definitely.
0: So Sorry. We'll fight later if you want. <laughs> uh, we had one one more. With the, his, this gentleman's hands up.
4: Uh, Michael McLeod Ball with the American Civil Liberties Union. Uh, first, I want to say I think the idea of uh, non-personally identifying disclosure really does have some interesting opportunities to solve some of the some of the disclosure issues. But getting back to the public financing issue, which I agree won't happen on the federal level, but the states being incubators, uh, uh, as the gentleman uh, across the across the auditorium mentioned, uh, we could see proposals going in, on in the state. States. And so my question is, um, what do you do about the issue of independent expenditures in a public financing um, uh, environment? Uh, I think everybody agrees you can't just ban independent expenditures if, in fact, they're truly independent. And so the first question is, A, what do you do about independent expenditures in that kind of circumstance? And, and B, is there, is there something either on the regulatory basis uh, through FEC or state equivalents uh, to, to redefine independent expenditures in a way that they are more truly independent as opposed to linked to the, to the candidates that are speaking?
0: Was this directed at Professor Lessig and Don again?
4: Uh, Professor Lessig, particularly on the on the uh, independent expenditures in the in the public financing scheme, uh, but to anybody who wishes to t- try to tackle a redefinition of independence or coordination.
1: Yeah, I, I actually think um, people have read too much into the court's decision. I don't think, and, and the reason I think that is related to the question Roger asked in the first panel. Um, you know. People in this field think that the world of corruption, as far as the court thinks about it, is, distinct, is, is distinguished between quid pro quo corruption and this equality corruption that motivated Austin versus Michigan. Um, and in that world, there is no corruption that relates to independent expenditures. But what I've tried to suggest, and, and Ackerman had a brief in, in a number of the cases that sort of pushed this idea, um, is that there's another conception of corruption here, actually much more attuned to what the framers cared about, and that is this dependency corruption. And from that perspective, while I don't think there's any constitutional way to stop um, you know, the Koch brothers from writing a check for $10 million and spending it on a particular ad, I do think that speech now moved too quickly in believing that independent political action committees can't properly be um, regulated Uh, Under this conception of independent of of, uh, dependency corruption and the reason I think that's true is that dependency corruption does not reverse Citizens United. Indeed, I've said I agree with the result in Citizens United. Citizens United should have upheld the right of a nonprofit filmmaker to spend their money to promote their film. Of course, if the First Amendment means anything, it has to mean that. But that's a separate question from whether it extends then to every kind of structure for pushing independent expenditures. And I think a broader conception of what of what uh, corruption is, um, not you know, a distinct conception of what corruption is, actually gives you a basis for thinking about that. And indeed, there's legislation in Congress right now that I think will explicitly build on that. Let me just add one more footnote to your point about anonymous ex- donations. Um, uh, indeed, so Bruce Ackerman and Ian Eyre's book both sets out this voucher system, but also brilliantly sets out a scheme for facilitating independent uh, anonymous donations. It's a really brilliant scheme. I commend it to you. But in fact, Florida tried it for judges and uh, judicial races. The only way to give money to the, ju- to the campaign was to do it anonymously through the bar. What happened is nobody gave any money. Once it was anonymous, all contributions dried up. So even though I agree with the analytic point that this does solve a bunch of the problem, we're still left with the problem, how do you fund campaigns if the consequence of it is that all you have is like the $300 million that was the small donations in the presidential campaigns?
0: All right, Don, go ahead.
2: To me, that, the, the argument against public financing that resonates the most Um, to me is what about independent expenditures and constitutionally you have to reverse Buckley to start looping that in. Now there have been campaigns that have tried to have these gentlemen's agreements where they publicly say, please no independent expenditures in our race and that kind of thing. But a lot of that ends up being theater more than, more than, than something that uh, really has any effect. Um, I, I come at it from a from an entirely different place and I I said this in my comments that money is a tool It's not it's not the end game just because you raise more money than the other guy doesn't mean you're gonna win Um, and When you look at the country different parts of the country are more expensive than others when you go on TV and I actually grabbed some numbers on my way here um, and to, to put it in, in terms, I mean, if, if you're familiar with TV advertising, it's done in points. You buy so many points of TV that gives you so many repetitions of an ad and political folks will tell you to, to get an ad to stick in the course of a week. You want the average viewer to, viewer to see it maybe 10 to 12 times, right? So you've a thousand points of television and they sell TV in points. Des Moines, Iowa in August of 2012, it was $85 a point. By October, is two hundred and fifty dollars a point. That's one of the cheaper markets. Now, when you thousand points of television, that's two hundred fifty thousand dollars for a week of TV. Let's go down, and and uh, Tampa, Florida, was five hundred and thirty-six dollars a point in August. In October, one thousand one hundred and twenty-five dollars a point. So you're looking at over a million dollars of a week of television for an average viewer to see your ad enough that political operatives will tell you will have some impact. Washington D.C., eight hundred fifty-three dollars in August, two thousand seven hundred seventy-seven dollars. Uh, come October, close to $3 million to be on a week of, of broadcast. Now, public financing, how can you really seriously expect candidates to compete through a public financing system with that, with that kind of money? Maybe a hybrid system? I don't know. But it seems to me to be somewhat unrealistic to think that uh, a system where there's some sort of taxpayer voucher or some sort of agreement that the party can do more coordinated so long as it's only – uh, campaigns that do public financing. I just don't know where you go. I mean, the reality is is um, the First Amendment means what it says, and it doesn't really matter who's been on the Supreme Court. Remember Massachusetts Citizens for Life, where they struck the corporate ban, sort of? Um, that was authored by Justice Brennan. Um, so uh, it really uh, it doesn't matter so much. Uh, at, at the core, um, the First Amendment is going to protect people to criticize the government. Uh, where the line between that and campaigns are has always been been a little fuzzy. Um, now the coordination rule and and what's truly independent that's something I hear the reform industry starting to use. They're starting quoting these court cases about you know whether it's truly independent or totally independent. It, it's like saying very unique. Uh, it's either unique or it's not. Um, if it's a contribution, you can put a limit on it. If it's not, then you can't. Uh, and I think that the idea of getting into this idea of reversing the burden and making people prove something's totally independent turns the First Amendment on its head and turns what the Supreme Court has said on its head because the court is, has really spoken quite strongly uh, about how uh, even investigating folks can chill speech. I mean, a, a big theme in Citizens United was was how they took the FEC to task, you know, and, and Bob Bauer had had quoted the the really punchy part in the first panel about its is to censor. So when you decide to get into this, let's try to prove. Let's try to have somebody who speaks prove total independence. You're having the government get into an area the Supreme Court has kind of said is is out of bounds, um, and, and the risk is great. Because what if a, a, an agency like the FEC decides to ramp up coordination investigations? What if we guess wrong? You've now investigated independent speech, and the Supreme Court has made clear you can't do that. So you're in this weird situation where you can regulate coordinated speech but not independent speech. And the FEC has been told repeatedly you can't regulate independent speech, but you're essentially regulating it. So I, I don't see how you can, you know, correct the so-called problem on independent expenditure. I think it's a reality that faces this, and I think the cost of running campaigns faces this. Um, something I was going to talk about in my comments but ran out of time was the role of the media. This is something Justice Alito's talked about quite a bit, we at the FEC, some of us had put it in an opinion we wrote long before Citizens United. It was a case involving George Soros and he had a book saying bad things about President Bush and the FEC wanted to sue him for failure to disclose the essentially the use of his Rolodex to mail commercial advertising for the book. It was the three Republicans who voted against suing George Soros because it seemed to me that was, that was independent speech and wasn't the sort of thing that the law covered the point I'm, I'm, I'm making there uh is that uh uh one of the reasons that we we said soros we weren't going to sue soros is he's no different than the media it's a book um one thing when i was in private practice when when i would deal with tv stations about tv advertising they would like to sometimes play truth police and say well your ad really isn't accurate and this and that and the other and i would ask a simple question and it always threw them on their heels how much time does your local news spend on your local congressional election generally the answer is zero so How many, you know, there's not a lot of ways for people to get their voice heard um, unless they do it themselves through independent speech. I think the courts recognize that and and the First Amendment recognizes that. And, uh, you know, if anyone has ideas how to get there that's constitutional, I think we're all ears at the FEC. But the FEC has been shellacked time and time and time again for trying to silence independent speech.
0: Um, So... I took your question to have two parts, and I think you had an answer to the legal parts and two different answers, but there's also, I thought there was also a practical question. And I will step out of the role of moderator to give a short answer, and then I'm going to turn the microphone back to John to close out the conference. Um, I do think, on the legal side, that um, the phenomenon of single candidate PACs. Uh, is very, very very—raises very serious questions about uh, whether contribution limits, let alone public financing, uh, could be sustained. Um, And—but the question about any public financing system, a question, is that if it's going to work, candidates have to step into it voluntarily. Um, And they're not going to step into it, whether you enact it or not if you do enact it, they're not going to step into it unless they can, they can think about the independent expenditures. Now, independent expenditures will happen whether there's a public financing system or not. Um, so, most of the proposals on the table now involve no spending limits. Second, they involve means through which candidates are given incentives to develop alternative methods for fundraising so they can keep going. And especially if you develop a small donor list, um, you can raise money quickly toward the end of a campaign. By the way, just to give a little number on this, um, not only were 80% of President Obama's donors small donors, but, but 70%, 69% of his disclosed donors started off as small donors. And most of them were giving at the end, and they were giving um, they gave five times during the course of the cycle on average. Um, so, this, this, these ideas are addressed in practical political terms in most of the bills that people are talking about now in a way that they weren't in earlier proposals. I put that at the table for, for conversation later over lunch, but to get us to that point, I want to give the, tele- the microphone now to John Samples. Thank you. Thank you, Mike.
3: Thanks for a great job. And I'd like to thank everyone for coming today. I'd like to thank our C-SPAN audience for joining us on this uh, issue that will continue to be uh, essential in American politics. And a little bit late, we are all going to go upstairs now. You're invited upstairs uh, uh, to the conference center, which is to go back to the spiral staircase and go up. Uh, There you'll find some of the books we've talked about today. And also, you'll find a lunch being served. And I would like to thank everyone on this panel, including Mike as moderator, and everyone that's been here today. Thank you very much.